Welcome to Making Sense of MarTech, and a regular set of conversations with some of the most interesting people in marketing, tech, and advertising. I'm Juan Mendoza. I write the MarTech Weekly Newsletter. It's a weekly email that covers the most important shifts in the marketing tech industry. You can read, listen, and subscribe at themartechweekly.com. Before we go into our episode today, I would love to share with you something new from the MarTech Weekly. It's called TMW100. Uh, we've launched a new MarTech Innovation Awards program ranking MarTech companies from first place to 100th place globally. We're announcing the winners in the first week of November in Anaheim, California, live with Mopsapalooza from MarketingOps.com. Uh, our judges include uh, folks like Scott Brinker, Daryl Afonso, and Jessica Cow. If you're building innovative marketing technology, I invite you to prove it at themartechweekly.com forward slash TMW100. That's themartechweekly.com forward slash TMW100. All right, back to our show. Okay, today we have Alex Terrio, the Chief Growth Officer at ad tech company Lodome. Alex has been working with Lodome for more than 15 years, which is an accomplishment in itself. Not many folks have been working at ad tech in one company for that long, so we're going to dig into that a little bit later. But um, Alex has played several really quite key roles in how the company has been built and formed um, into an international ad tech player. Uh, but Lodome, I guess, plays a really interesting role in the ad tech space and increasingly in the mark tech space um, through its widely used Panorama ID, uh, the dead data sharing marketplace, and their recently announced spherical platform, uh, what they call a CDP accelerator, uh, which is uh, complementary to the CDP and it helps accelerate brands into ad tech use cases using first-party data. So in this episode, we talk about why Lodome has decided to step over the fence a little bit here into the MarTech world with the Spherical platform, the role of first-party data in a first third-party cookie world, um, how identity is changing in ad tech, and also if we start to see a divergence between paid and owned focused CDPs. And so now I bring you Alex. How you doing, Alex? I'm great, Juan. Thanks for inviting me on. Well, I'm excited to have you here. I've been learning like crazy about the Spherical platform and what you're doing at Lodome. Uh, so we've got a lot to unpack. But before we get into that, I do have a question for you. Where did you find your way into the data-driven marketing space? Like, How did you actually start your career? And what's kept you at Lodome for so long? Yeah, so um, I found my way into the career because I was at college in Syracuse University, which is upstate New York. And I'm a Boston girl by by heritage. And my roommate at the time said, if you don't go to New York now, you'll never go to New York and you've got to see the big city. And he introduced me to into ad tech and I, I had never left. Um, so was at a first company probably just for a year. It was acquired and I really wanted to be in more of the startup space. I didn't want to be in large corporate business at 22 years old. So I jumped from there into Lodomy and I've been along for quite the journey, as you mentioned, coming up on 15 years this year. Well, that's exciting. I mean, being in New York, that would have been what, back in like the mid 2000s, roughly 2005, 2006? Seven, so I made it into the workforce right before the big financial crash wow. in 2008. So I was I was lucky in that regard and benefited also from uh, rent was was a little bit more approachable for New York City that year. So uh, yeah, I was very lucky uh, in that regard. Yeah, and that's like fascinating because back then ad tech was such a baby, you know, compared to the like the beast that it is now in the industry and how much. It's, you know, before Google, there was, it was really back in those days, there was no clear winner in the ad tech space. In terms of third-party cookies, you know, even back in those days, contextual advertising was like one of those hot things that people were thinking about in terms of how you, do you run ads on the web. A lot of direct publishing, like just working with publishers and bloggers directly to run ads, you know, and it, it must have felt like a really creative time um, back then. A lot of options, a lot of solutions, a lot of different experiments. A lot of experiments. And I remember my mom was also from the ad tech very early days. And I called her and I said, oh, I'm going to work for this company. They're selling social media impressions for $4. And she's like, no, they're not. It's not possible. And it was a lot of 
Lotomy was evangelizing audience targeting before audience targeting was a thing. So they were they were really making sense of all the rich data in these social profiles again before people were buying audiences. Yeah, I mean that's just even that in itself, you know, if it's social media impressions for four dollars, like just incredible. Like, like sometimes I wish I was working in the industry back then because of how creative and how had just so many different interesting solutions. It kind of really felt like the uh, Cambrian explosion of ad tech and also a lot of martech it was sort of born in that period and um it is really exciting but now we're kind of coming to a new period of time where we have a lot more experimentation particularly in the ad tech side of the world as it feels like the industry is shifting again you know we've got third-party cookies that are going away google chrome has just announced that they're going to start deprecating cookies for a small percentages of users starting next year so that's a massive shift in the industry for a, a advertising technology that a lot of marketers have been using for a very, very long time. But we also have privacy shifts. We have regulation shifts around how data can be used. And then we've got all these interesting companies. Like like I mentioned before, contextual advertising is coming up. And there's some great startups like SeaTag and GumGum that are working on like using AI and contextual advertising as an alternative. But then we've got this whole trend around using first-party data in ad tech and advertising which is something that brands have been doing for a long time. You know, I remember when I started my career, I was setting up Facebook pixels and sending first-party data back to Facebook for like abandoned car programs and things like that. So it's not entirely new first-party data in ad tech, but it does feel like because the main source of tracking and cross-site tracking is going away now, which is third-party cookies, that first-party data is kind of in the spotlight in that um, a lot of brands, customer data platforms, ad tech firms, are thinking about how to use this for uh, ad tech use cases. But I want to ask you about Spherical. And I guess when you guys started to um, think about or ideate on which direction you should take this first party data for ad tech and the Spherical platform itself, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming Spherical was a result of many workshops and ideation and strategy and analysis. But could you give us a snapshot of like where the idea came from originally? Yeah. So, um, it's funny, I, I joke that we had our own identity crisis um, because we were navigating a lot of uh, a lot of questions, concerns, market pressure of like, you're a DMP, DMPs are dead, everyone's just buying CDP, CDP is the future. And, um, and, and yet our business was still healthy and uh, we had customers who were longtime customers and loyal and, and they're doing their own analysis and they're getting their own pressure to bring in a CDP and then stand up these two, you know, businesses side by side and make sense of, of what roles they each play. So um, we did, we did a lot of investment in research uh, internally and externally, a lot of conversations with CDPs. Um, and we came out with a very clear perspective that uh, the role of the CDP is necessary um, for a lot of businesses. I think the one caveat is, is you have to have first party data to make sense of it, you know, authenticated first party data. Um, and there's some companies that that don't have a rich portfolio of first party data, but their primary capability set is in retention. And it's in understanding your existing customer and doing analysis on, you know, maybe product recommendations that are complementary to products they've already bought. But there was some pretty significant gaps that would be recognized and um, definitely happy to go into those gaps that that uh, me and our long standing technology, our long-standing relationships with data providers, our long-standing integrations with ad tech activation points. None of those are things that a CDP can just turnkey stand up. I mean, that is, I've been at Lotomy 15 years. We've been around for 17 years. Like I've seen the building blocks of this as far as kind of navigating the third-party cookie-less world having our our own identity spine at the center of it is such a critical component uh to how we see a path into 2024 and beyond it's fascinating because there's a lot of cdps are trying to move in the ad tech space as well you know which is really interesting i mean i remember companies such as like telium when third-party cookie deprecation was announced and then you know google set some preliminary dates back in 2021 you know, CDPs like Telium were like, oh, can't use third-party cookies anymore? We're a CDP. We can help you just get all of your first-party data organized. So we've got this like fascinating crossover of like 
MarTech focused customer data platforms, thinking about the ad tech use cases. And then on the other side, the ad tech platforms like uh, Lodomay, but also the Trade Desk, they've also recently announced their own CRM CDP moving into this space as well. And it kind of feels like, uh, I don't know, ships in the night a little bit, like these two different worlds are sort of walking past each other a little bit in the sense that, you know, there's this problem with, I think that everyone's trying to solve, which is how do we do targeted advertising without third party cookies? And first party data is that thing that um, that's worth trying, I guess, at least and experimenting with um, as the next viable data point or data source for um, using an ad tech. But, but I mean, from the brand's perspective, like talking with brands and customers, how are they thinking about this? Because is, is first party data sort of front of mind in terms of the next viable opportunity? Or is there a variety of ways of thinking about what they do next? Like, how? Are you, what are you seeing from brands? Um, I think they're still in a test and learn stage, uh, for sure. They're they're trying to figure out again what part of the stacks they need, what they want to build, what they want to buy, all of that. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk about clean rooms and data collaboration as well. I think that's just like right now we're talking about CDPs. I think the next avenue is going to be into how to move not move that data but instead collaborate and enrich through other platforms um your point you know you mentioned telium and i think it's a great example of um a cdp and one that we're integrated with um they lean into the client side activation you know they're born out of being a tag manager so their their kind of technology and bread and butter by nature is more of like tag on page and so I see them um, as a good example of a CDP that's going to navigate the ad tech, martech blend better than some others, which are our orchestration CDPs and, and they're fully kind of cloud-based, no data warehousing, no actual kind of connectivity. Um, and as we've talked to all these CDPs from a partnership, from a better together perspective, they've actually been very interested in our own identity spine, in our data enrichment partnerships that we can bring to the table. Um, so I think as they're trying to figure that out, they might do that in partnership with companies like Lodomy because they can kind of plug that in and light up some of that complementary ad tech, martech uh, use cases. Um, but you are actually building it themselves um, because it is, it's, I think it's lofty and they'll quickly find themselves behind the ball because it, it, it's a very competitive market right now. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. I think that um, the data collaboration and the, um, the ability to um, share data with publishers and allowing all of that uh, architecture, there's, like it's extremely hard to navigate. I think that's the first thing, particularly if you're thinking about like, okay, how do we use our first party data to work with a retail media platform or to work in a walled garden such as like Amazon or Apple or, you know, um, the sort of more first party data rich platforms. Like how do we do data collaboration or data matching or um, even doing, you know, probabilistic or deterministic matching on the customers in their um, publishing ecosystem and in the, the customers in your brand? Like that is very hard to do. You know, and then you've got all this other stuff around demand side and supply side. And, you know, it's like a maze sometimes, I think, ad tech. There's so many edges on it that you need to think about. And when you put a layer of like <laughs> of compliance and regulation and making sure that you're not like leaking data, you know, like for example, um, I think it was Sephora, you know, very well-known consumer brand. Uh, last year, they were actually fined, not a lot, I think it was a couple million dollars um, for not sharing their customers' first-party data with ad tech firms without getting their customers consent and for a retailer like sephora that's that's pretty big right but you're starting to see this come out with a lot of brands thinking about the privacy issue the implications of privacy and so i look at this whole space and i'm like oh my goodness it is just such a maze there's so much to think about um but maybe we can talk about something a little bit more concrete i mean um sephirical has been in the market for a little while now um, and you've had some brands working on it, using it, implementing it. Um, could you talk us through perhaps like a case study or a, um, a situation where the brand's gone in and used Spherical and what they kind of used it for? Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. Um, the the first example that comes to mind is in the the beauty category, not Sephora, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> a bit of a, a perfect tea up for me. Uh, 
So we do have a a very large global uh, beauty brand that we've onboarded this year. And they have a CDP. They recognize some of the, the limitations with their CDP, especially from a customer acquisition perspective. And so they've onboarded Spherical because when you think about it, even though, you know, COVID helped change the way that consumers buy products, they've, they've moved into more of a digital exchange. There's more opportunity for brands um, to cultivate a direct to consumer relationship. But at the end of the day, something like beauty products, and I'm only speaking on behalf of myself, like people still want to go and like see and feel and touch and test like different beauty products. So there's still uh, probably a very healthy percent of those customers that are buying those products in a retail environment that there's no data feedback loop. Or if there is, it's, you know, in a retail media network perspective where you can to play. And, and again, it doesn't necessarily come back into your own warehousing. So um, they onboarded Spherical and were able to make sense of more of the unknown. So whether that's people who are coming to their site and doing research but not making a product purchase, or whether that's um, helping define people who add to cart and then doing persona analysis. So I've added to cart, maybe I haven't made a purchase. But what is it that, you know, from a demographic perspective, from a purchase intent outside of the beauty category perspective, like lifestyle habits, all of that stuff that CDPs aren't well equipped to you know, tell that start story, fill those gaps, help inform strategy, look like modeling. Like we, we're bringing in their existing customers from their CDP into our system. And then we're helping like accelerate the use of that first party data beyond just existing retention, but put it at the center of your lookalike strategy and also do it in your system of record versus pushing it direct into Facebook and direct into Google and risking like very different AI models that are outputting whatever their lookalike black box sauce is. Um, so those are, I, I mean, just to name a few, I think that's really where we're seeing a huge, um, value that brands are extracting from bringing Spherical on board. Mm, I agree with you on the point that CDPs can um, take those events, like things like add to cart or purchasing intent, you know, all these different behaviors, and they can help you make sense of them from your own first party data within your own brand. But um, yeah, traditionally CDPs have played the role of making sense of that and then sending it downstream to another ad tech network, as you mentioned, like Google or Facebook, you know, send a, um, send a, a particular contact or add a card to a lookalike audience to Facebook. And then you're kind of dealing with whatever meta Facebook's algorithm is, right? You don't have control over that. You don't have a lot of insight and increasingly, you know, meta is not able to supply insight to which exactly which customers are you matching up with or, you know, um, what are the sort of key insights? So it kind of feels to me like Spherical plays this interesting role as like you're collecting and taking first party data from whichever event or whichever thing a customer does and then shifting it into your own identity graph and then providing insights so that you don't have to deal directly with, say, a Google or a Meta. You can deal with the millions of other publishers out there as well. It's a little bit more flexible as opposed to just sending first party down, data downstream into some of the major ad tech players. Am I hearing you right? Is that sort of the the advantage there for particularly for that beauty brand? Hundred um, percent. I would go a step further and also say you're benefiting from off the shelf relationships with those data partners. So where like through the research that we did that kind of led to Spherical was um, I, I have a CDP I want to do enrichment. The method of taking first party data out of a CDP and then getting it into any sort of matching environment, like an onboard, like a live ramp or one of these, it's very cumbersome. It takes time. It, it takes human effort. You have to, in most cases, contract directly with these third-party providers to do the enrichment. And that enrichment's only going to happen on your deterministic identifier. So again, it's only going to help you enrich on your known consumer. If you're an online retailer and only 10% of your purchases are transacting there, you've got 90% of the activity is just unknown, like 
Like there's, it's, I see you, I can wave to you, but I can't actually tangibly understand anything about you as a consumer and where to go find you again, especially without third party cookies. Hmm. And I guess as a side from this, um, for the spherical platform, given that it's taking first party data from brands and then matching that with your own data, where, data marketplace and, and also with the ID, Panorama ID and all of that, I mean, where does consent sit? So for example, the trade desk has UID 2.0 and consent is like kind of confused right now. Like brands have to get consent from the consumer around using their data for marketing and advertising purposes. But once the, the first party data, like an email address, for example, is in the UID 2.0 ecosystem, that's being shared with publishers, encrypted. But um, if you want to take yourself out of the UID 2.0, you actually have to go to the trade desk website, put your email address in. And then it will take you out of all of the um, their ecosystem with the the UID 2.0. And I look at that and I'm like, there's no way in hell a consumer is going to put their email address in if they want to, um, yeah, you know, yeah, they, they put their email address into the trade desk to to basically remove their consent from being tracked with their first party data. Now, the third party cookie was brilliant in that it actually offloaded all of that consent practice to the user. You can just delete your cookies. You can install an ad blocker. And, you know, the consumer can sort of do whatever they want with their browser. But now because of first party data sharing in ad tech, the consume, the consent aspect is, um, it still seems a bit murky to me. Like, I don't feel like anyone's really solved it yet, just yet, but maybe a lot of may, or you have a point of view on this, on that, how does consent being managed with this first party data sharing and matching? Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll. This is where, it, like, I'm not a lawyer, and we're not a consent solution, and all of the uh, the the kind of preface. Um, but what I will say is, when it comes to consent, um, consent has to come from the end user, the the point of data collection. So whether that's the brand and you know utilization of a consent management platform, our system integrates with consent management platforms via API. So in your example, if somebody, um, you, you, let's say, went to this beauty site on Monday, did some browsing, add to cart, I you know, qualify for a an audience of people who put this mascara product in my cart, but then I go back on Thursday and I, you know, like we all do every single time, doesn't matter what browser you're on, you get that like, hey, we use cookies and we track. Um, at the point of, let's say, on Thursday, I want to opt out. That brand can pass that opt out through the consent API to Lodemy. Lodemy would take that user out of that audience set and pass it upstream into the trade desk or something of that nature. So now we are relying on our partners, whether they're publishers, whether they're data sources, whether they're brands, to be the one capturing it and passing it. Um, we've also seen a lot of, it all kind of depends on every region is different. As we know, there's a lot of emerging regulations coming out. Um, we've seen some decisioning logic where it's, if I don't get consent, I just don't fire the load of me tag. Like yep. that's a method of managing, you know, consent. Um, but what we're, what we found to be most successful is, GDPR and the implementation of TCF 2.0, because there was a rallying behind us, you know, what we believe as a standard uh, process and protocol. We can all speak the same language. We can all pass this on the same thread. Uh, North America is not rallying fast <laughs> enough behind a standardized process. And it's, you know, we're just July 1st was the first like real implementation in California. There's a whole bunch of states that are quickly following. It's going to be messy. And at the end of the day, I feel the worst for the CMO at Sephora, who has a pretty busy day job and somehow missed some sort of tech consent framework that should have been implemented along the way. I think we really, we as an organ, like we as an industry need to continue to push standardization just to make it easy for us all to kind of navigate 2024 and beyond. Yeah, I, I agree. I think there's two compounding factors on like consent frameworks right now. The first is making sense of the interpretation of how you should be acting in your business of the existing rules. And the second one, which you called out, which is really important, is that in some parts of the world, 
it's there's there is no um, uniform um, approach to this. And you know, the United States is going to be really interesting because it it feels as though the the federal government is taking a state based approach. Like CCPA has got their own rules. Different states in the U.S. have different rules and regulations, which will just be a minefield. I mean, can you imagine? You know, you you're a brand and you breach consent of a con- consumer in one state in the U.S. because they have a specific stipulation in their rules. Like that just sounds absurd to me. You know, where the GDPR was a union of, and it's been running for a long time now. But like it's been a union of all the European countries and basically rallying around this one concept, which is the GDPR. But you know what? Even the IAB got GDPR um, cookie consent pop-up um, advice wrong, right? Like the GDPR fined IAB, the you know the main sort of advisory um, standards firm for advertising in Europe because they gave not the right advice because of interpretation. I mean, so again, it's very challenging, but it's interesting to see that I guess Lodome is using um, that you're not trying to take any space in that particular area around consent management. You're actually relying on the platforms that specialize in that thing. And then you integrate directly with them, which is probably a better way to decouple because for a lot of brands, they'd be using Lodome, but they'd probably be using their data and ad tech in other spaces as well. So it's probably more of a question to brands around what consent management platform they're using and how does it integrate yeah. downstream with tools like Lodome. Um, so yep. it's very interesting um, just to think about, okay, where does consent sit in the landscape right now? Uh, I, I, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's very interesting. Now, um, I guess I want to talk about this whole concept of an ad tech focused CDP and how it differs from your traditional CDP or this customer data platforms that traditionally work with like first party data in own channels. So customer data platforms up until now, you know, we've got DMPs, which we can talk about a little bit later, but um, the CDP has really played a a role in, um, I guess, helping brands activate, unify their data so they can activate it across their web, website experience, their app experience, their SMS, email, all of the owned channels that brands manage. Like majority of the uh, use cases that I've worked on in the past have all been sort of owned channel you know, how do we do experimentation, personalization? How do we do really good triggered email marketing? You know, how do we do these things by making sure that we have identity managed in, in a CDP and then we're able to activate it downstream? Now, the ad tech focus use cases are extremely different from that. Of course, there's similar patterns. But my question is like, okay, if first party data is going to be the next source of, um, of advertising data, all right, well, what should brands do? Should they have a an own channel CDP and a um, an ad tech paid channels focused CDP in their Martech stack? Should they have both? Um, you, uh, a lot of my uh, call Spherical a CDP accelerator for a reason in that um, it's almost complementary. But how do you see this mix between the owned and the paid channel? Should they be the one and the same thing? Or um, do you see different examples from brands um, splitting, splitting them out? I have a lot of thoughts. Um, so yeah, I think the way that uh, we see this is ultimately, will there be some convergence? I'm sure. Like we're, we're seeing that consolidation across all of programmatic and where that, where it gets too bloated under one roof, you know, there's going to be a line that we hit. But, and I think Google's a perfect example of that and the challenges that you run into when Every single side of the ecosystem is controlled by a single company. But I do think that there will be some consolidation. And you mentioned Telium as an example that's leaning into ad tech. Um, some of the reasons that we decided not to pivot into the CDP space, you know, by putting ourselves into that box, uh, also hits on our prior topic of from a privacy perspective. We have a whole rich host of data, second party data, third party data, also first party data. A lot of it is collected in an anonymous and aggregated environment that is really kind of data minimized compared to a CDP where you can log in and put first name, last name, email and see this whole robust record of all of your activities when you opened an email when you put a product in car, you know, when you've made a purchase, if you subscribe to a product or, you know, subscribe to a newsletter, 
Um, it's very, and, and that's okay if you keep it in that closed ecosystem. As soon as you bring in data that might be attached to environments that you consented in an anonymous sense of like, I'm consenting to you collecting my data because I'm reading a uh, an article on a health site about diabetes. That's a very sensitive topic that that person doesn't want to be kind of couple, you know, basically re-identified as reading diabetes content back to your first name, last name, email. That's where it gets really creepy and where Lodamine <laughs> wanted to really creepy. I mean, and I can give you yeah. other creepy examples that we need to keep that bifurcation. And so having two different systems and allowing for that uh, owned data management of that CDP to do the one-to-one marketing, and then that data to go upstream and connect to anonymous touch points for that enrichment, for that um, customer acquisition strategy, we feel that that's going to be the way from a privacy perspective to serve both purposes in the most connected way possible. Um, and I, I think that's probably the strongest reason that that we went that route. To your point, though, about kind of do I have to stand up two separate CDPs uh, or in our case, you know, a CDP and Spherical, which is our CDP accelerator, we are seeing a lot of changes in the commercial model of it and even the implementation of it. We've introduced a variable model to be more approachable, to fill the gaps, to not, you know, as, as from a, you know, investment perspective, you're not standing up two SaaS contracts with yeah. two-year commits and lofty monthly minimums and, you know, from a resource instead, we have a truly variable model where they can test and learn. They can do some lookalike modeling and target in, in meta. They can come in and just create a few analytics audiences and do some discovery. If it performs well, great. Let's expand the use case. If you're an agency, expand it to different brands, do some data collaboration, you know, do some second party data sharing. Um, because we understand that the CDP for a lot of companies is an important investment. You need to unify and make sense of your first party data at a one-to-one level. But we also know where that kind of line in the sand where they run up against the challenges of, of then navigating into ad tech. Yeah, it's, um, I think the concept of like the proof, like the POC of like something like a ad tech CDP makes a ton of sense. I mean, most CVPs and enterprise companies take six to 12 months to implement. It's absolutely insane how best, long it takes. Best case. Uh, yeah, best I, exactly. Case. Best I case. Like two years. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And you think like, geez, it doesn't take that long. But um, I think the CDP in own channels is like a very, it's very ingrained in the business. You know, I kind of think of MarTech and AdTech is MarTech is within and AdTech is without. And there's less dependencies on like, um, I guess, the internal data situation in a business to implement technologies. You know, it's all about how do we actually match what you got with what's out in the marketplace, right? And how do we actually integrate with the platforms outside, not make sense of your data orchestration inside your business, which is where a lot of your MarTech-focused CDPs are in. And so I think part of the implementation problem and why it's so hard to do like POCs with customer data platforms is just... It's so deeply ingrained with your own data warehouse, your own systems, your own data collection practices that it requires a lot of work to actually just clean house, I think, and prepare for a CDP. But what I'm hearing is that the spherical CDP is an accelerator is that, well, assuming that a brand has a lot of that already stilled up, you can come in and pretty quickly just build out an ad tech use case with the existing first party data in a CDP and accelerate basically ad tech, audience matching and all the things that you've mentioned so far in your examples. Um, that kind of feels like the role of spherical. Does that make sense, or am I getting that wrong? No, you're you're getting that right. I think the the other example I would call out is there are there are plenty of companies that we found that have done the analysis and don't need a CDP. Um, a good example is we work with a large egg brand in the U.S. Like, there's very little. Ability for an egg company who sells their eggs in a grocery store to generate 
large volumes of first party data. So to go stand up a CDP, I think would be, you know, it's been six to 12 months at best and have very meaningful output. Um, they're a perfect example of a spherical customer because we are a solution for brands who have first party data or need first party data. So our data can help fill those gaps. We actually, you know, whether it's a panel based company, whether it's survey integrating with survey providers that are asking what egg brand do you buy or, or what are the, you know, do you like eggs that are organic or are you more price oriented or, you know, those kind of things so that they can create audience sets that represent their customers in lieu of having truly sourced first party data. So that's another good example of a spherical customer that doesn't have a CDP. That's really interesting because yeah, there's, I think there's this like this maturity shift. I think that, you know, more by and large, a CDP is a solved problem, right? Like we've been now through seven or eight years of brands using it, implementing it. And most brands have some form of CDP. I mean, even like Shopify, um, originated email marketing platform, Clavio has a CDP, like a triple whale. They have Shopify analytics platform, like small to medium Marte companies, are, are they offering CDP? So I kind of feel like CDP is a solved problem now. The next sort of question and answer is like, well, what do we do with this thing? How far can we push it? How can we um, obviously maximize the value? And perhaps the accelerator positioning makes a lot more sense to go, hey, this is kind of a almost like a, a multiple on top of your CDP. Okay, you're collecting data. You're, most brands are doing that well now. All right, the, here's one way you can use it to drive efficiencies with your ad spend as an example you know here's one way you can use it so you can improve efficiencies with logistics you know there's a whole bunch of areas in which a cdp hasn't truly just touched yet and i think ad tech is one of those ones that is just emerging and i think the accelerated aspect is quite interesting because when i first looked at spherical i was like oh a cdp but for ad tech but it's also a cdp so would they do downstream activation for email marketing as an example you know do they manage consent like a lot of cdps do like I had a lot of questions around where do they sit, but it definitely seems as though the approach a lot of mates taking is it's this um, complementary accelerator on top of companies that have already got that first party data maturity um, with with their existing CDP, which is interesting. I mean, now we're talking about a little bit more about the whole concept of moving away from third party cookies. So um, a lot of research right now is pointing towards a lot of marketers are ready for that. You know, for example, martech.org did a big survey recently, and they said that 70% of marketers are, are still using third-party cookies and relying on them, and are not ready to move away from it just yet. But I do want to take a moment to pause with you, Alex, and think about, well, if we're moving to first-party data as the next source of, um, a mainstream source of ad tech data, like, what is the advantages and what are the challenges? Like, how do you think about this space that we're in and using this new data source of course it's extremely different from third-party cookies and third-party data but what are the unique opportunities maybe we can start there yeah i think the opportunity ultimately first party data you understand the source you understand the quality of it you have a lot of control over how to use it and when to use it um so it is such a rich asset that I, we as an industry, I think, have been lazy and haven't had to invest in the first party data side. And you know, publishers won't have, but now brands are being forced to come to the table with as much first party data as they can. Um, I think we'll talk a little bit about what, like uh, the, the collaboration side, the data sharing, data clean rooms, because the more first party data you can bring to the table and kind of the partnerships, whether it's a brand collaborating with a publisher, whether it's a brand like collaborating with a complementary but not competitive brand. I think there's really interesting strategies that let's say a hotel brand and an airline brand can do. So if they're both coming to the table with rich first party data, now they can do co-marketing and planning and cross-selling and upselling of each other's services without ever losing control of their first party data. So um, there's a lot of opportunity and promise, but the study you referenced, I think is spot on. The, the forcing function to create those strategies in a scalable way is very early days. Uh, yes, we're still, a little while away, I think we're still three or four years away from 
Um, moving on to this next situation, which is how do we solve the problem of having good quality data that's scalable enough, that's plentiful enough to actually do good advertising use cases with it. And I think that's like the opportunity. I think that the, I guess the lineage or the traceability of first party data is much better in the sense that you know where it originates from. Someone signs up on your website with their email address. All right. That's a point of origination. You can track that back. Um, it's also, I guess, more personal. And I'm interested to get your thoughts on this in that, I guess, the third-party cookies and third-party tracking and RTB get a lot of negative press around, you know, granular interest categories, right? Like um, I'm on a website and I'm shopping for, I don't know, shoes or something. And you can get right down to the pinpoint of a personal um, interest or um, a need for something. And that gets pretty sensitive when you're, you know, searching for all kinds of personal products or services that you probably don't want other people to know about, you know? And, um, and I think that like the granularity and the personal aspect of it is one of those areas where it's a source of opportunity, but also challenge, but I still want to sit in the opportunity space a bit, but how do you think about, I guess, the expanded opportunities within targeting for first party data, maybe as a, as a starting point? Um, I think that until there's enough scale, um, I think there's, I wouldn't call them expanded opportunities unless they're, they are working with solutions that can utilize lookalike tools that can, um, a good example that we have our collaboration, uh, Lotomy collaborate is, is offers a brand to bring their first party data and then they can, uh, analyze kind of content categories of a publisher site. So that's a great opportunity when we say targeting, I talk a lot about data informed targeting and data driven targeting. So we've lived in a data driven targeting environment for a very long time in ad tech where the data is so portable that it's really easy to move around and we can be lazy and the third party cookies, so on and so forth. What I think we're going to see is a lot more data informed targeting. So bring your first party data to the table, bring the publisher's first party data to the table, analyze overlap and index and make decisions, far more informed decisions around what contextual categories or sections or even articles that a brand wants to buy. But at the end of the day, the data is not actually at the point of the impression making the decision. The publisher is deploying a contextual strategy, but it is not going back in time 10, 15 years to what we called contextual back then. It's far more uh, accurate and still addressable. Yeah. So I think that there's a, I think there's an interesting opportunity given that I guess because you're collecting first party data like email addresses, you know, phone numbers, you know, I'm seeing increasingly more apps using uh, collecting phone numbers when you sign up for a particular like a messaging app or a social app they want your phone number instead of your email address and then one of the reasons for that is phone num people change their phone numbers less uh, often than they would with their email address you know so there's a business value opportunity there but again it's a user it's a probably a like for example you know you, well the way i think about third-party cookies is that you know what a device is doing not necessarily a person so you don't know who behind the screen is actually using that computer or that device, you know, back in the day, uh, we had one family computer and my sister used it. My mom used it. My dad used it and everyone used yeah. the same computer. Right. And, but it's the same cookie. And I think with first party data, it's actually getting more towards the individual. Like what's that individual doing? What is their, um, what are the correct characteristics that we're collecting, uh, on an email address, which is more tied to a unique individual user. Uh, so I think that's, probably one of the opportunities that you're probably getting closer to singular identity as opposed to um, devices or multiple devices that the, uh, a regular person would use every day. I, I think you're spot on. Um, I think, and this navigates us into the challenges, it, it's how well they can do it. It's the value exchange. What is the value exchange that these brands can create to give up that information, you know, for the online retailers, fine. Like the value exchanges, I don't have to leave my house and I can buy this product and you ship it to me, you know, within two days. That That's a very clear one, but there's so many brands that don't have that type of value exchange. Um, I have, it's funny, I, I, in prepping to chat with you, I came across a really, uh, a recent example 
my 75-year-old dad is a, as a lot of older people are, stuck in their ways, drinks the same brand of wine, probably has for 30 years. And I was with him recently and he took out these insulated wine cups that are branded by this wine brand. And he's like, Alex, let me show you these. I got these for free from the the wine company. I'm like, how did you get them for free? And he's like, all I had to do was upload the receipts for the wine that I purchased. I go onto their website and I upload the receipt and I plug in my information. And then once I did enough bottles of wine, they send me a free insulated wine glass. And I was like, nothing's free, dad. That's first party data. And a great strategy that this beverage company has deployed to identify loyal customers. And I was like, now you're in their CRM. They've never known you before because all they do is put bottles of wine into liquor stores or grocery stores. And I was like, that's genius. Like more brands need to think about stuff like that of like, what's that value exchange for some probably very affordable insulated wine glasses. They now have information on a loyal customer with his first name, last name, phone number, email address, all of that. Um, so I think as long as we we see and help brands with those strategies, then first party data can be really powerful. The, the real question, Alex, is uh, are they good glasses? Does he like using them? He does like using them, yeah. <laughs> I know it's not even a crap product. <laughs> and that's the thing. I mean, that's a fantastic example of, uh, I guess the next bit, which is some of the challenges around using first party data, which I think concentrating on the, like the value exchange is really important. Like customers are giving their money to a brand in exchange for a service or a product. They're also giving their time and attention and they're also giving their data, their personal information. And in the example of your father, like who cares about his wine buying preferences? No one cares except for the brand, right? Like he cares. And, you know, because wine is a social thing. It's like have someone over for a bottle of wine and he's got, you know, some nice products to share. And it's a social thing. Like it doesn't matter who knows what wine your dad drinks. No, but for the brand, it's really valuable because they can identify who he is, what he buys, and they can offer personalized recommendations. Also send that downstream to ad networks to target it with ads when he's on, on his, on various websites. And so not all first party data is the same. Some is more sensitive than others. Your wine preferences is different from say your fertility or your fertility treatment prefer preferences of the IVF. It's very different from yeah. your, um, I don't know, your preferences for different types of diets or different types of food that you like to eat and your preferences for different types of psychology or, or people that you want to talk to, to get therapy. You know, all of these different first party data points are all drastically different. And it's a sliding scale. I think that, you know, what a lot of um, the media get wrong about first party data is like first party data is like a breach of privacy if you're using an ad tech. But there's this sliding scale. It's a gradient of different sensitivities and different brands have different levels of sensitivity. And I think that, you know, to your point about your father's, the story you share with your father, it's like, really, who cares? Like, <laughs> like who really cares about his wine buying preferences? But I think going into the value exchange bit, um, we wrote for the MarTech Weekly, we wrote an essay called the day customers stop sharing data. And it was all about this topic of um, if brands need to use first-party data and ratchet up the volume, because right now, um, and you, you alluded to this earlier, Alex, that we don't have the volume or the scale with first-party data. It's just not as plentiful as third-party cookies, which could be a solved problem. Like we could actually get to more volume, but we're going to require to ask customers for more of their information. And the whole thesis around that essay was, well, what's the breaking point here? If brands don't get it right and they're just continually either trying to use dark UX patterns to collect more first-party data or, you know, uh, deceiving co consumers or just outright asking for it, consumers are going to just look like uh, the, the real problem is that if we're going to do that and ask for more and more data, consumers may turn against brands and say, hey, we don't want to share information. We're going to use Apple private relay or we're going to use Apple mask my email address so I don't have to share that. And you know what? As a consumer, I use that tool as an, as an Apple consumer to mask my email address when I'm dealing with brands. And so I think the next challenge here, and I'm interested in your thoughts, is like, how do you not do the same thing with third-party cookies that you that um, that we're currently pursuing with first-party data? You know, third-party cookies is going away because of privacy, breach of consumer trust of privacy, regulation. But 
um, first, first party data could end up in the same situation if we're not careful. So how do we avoid that? <laughs> yeah, I think um, this this probably goes back into the the more standardization that we can deploy of helping and really education to the end consumer, because I've also read studies um, that consumers like personalized advertising. And I think because their ready cookies are still around, they're not actually feeling how noisy and irrelevant ads will become in a world where there isn't the ability to do personalization. My experience, you know, whether it's social media or reading the news, like I don't want loud, obnoxious ads that have no relative relevance to my life you know as much as i want to see really luxurious travel to asia i have two four-year-olds and an eight-year-old and the likelihood that i'm going to be kind of doing long travel across the globe to some luxurious place is unlikely but show me an ad for you know family travel down in the caribbean which is three hours away for me and more affordable and family friendly but um, also all you can all you can eat and drink because, you know, I'm still on vacation. Um, so I just think that I, I appreciate personalized advertising. I think most people appreciate personalized advertising. They're only exposed to the negative side of it and the scary, to use your examples, extreme on that sliding scale. They're not appreciating that, you know, if I want to be if I'm buying new hiking boots like i want ads for new hiking boots i want to know what the best deal is i want to i want to be introduced to brands that aren't just the one brand i've always bought my whole life like that's actually very attractive to me um and if we don't figure out how to share consent and opt into sharing first party data in a way that a consumer feels is comfortable it's going to really affect all of our experiences in in the free and open web. Mm. And I think that's the needle we need to thread. And unfortunately, in the world of the internet, a few bad actors will ruin it for everyone. <laughs> you know, and it only takes a few data breaches for the government to respond or for platforms to respond and a few major headlines. If you re recall back in 2017, 2018, Cambridge Analytica was that sort of watershed moment, I think, for a lot of ad tech and a lot of data privacy situations where, you know, we, we, we're about to release a podcast with Shoshana Wodinsky. She's an ad tech reporter in privacy. And she was sort of the first, um, one of the first journalists to actually cover this space and talk about ad, uh, talk about privacy violations, not from a perspective of what the government is doing in like citizen privacy, but what companies are doing on the internet around data privacy and and uh, the breaches of data privacy as well. And it took like five years for the whole attitude to shift around ad tech from this is a wonderful tool to enable free services and products to every, everyone's surveilling you, right? Surveillance capitalism is the next thing. And, you know, everyone's trying to tra tra uh, track you and target you with ads. But I think that like, if we don't get the narrative right with first party data, if we don't get the story right, and we have more bad actors, I think two things will happen. I think first party data will be more regulated, like, you know, what we're seeing right now with GDPR. A lot of it is based on cookies, you know, cookie consent, cookie banners and pop-ups. But we're going to see increasingly, you know, um, closing some of the doors around how you use first party data. Secondly, I just think consumers are going to change their behaviors. I mean, if I'm signing up, like I went to a cafe the other day, Alex, I went to the cafe and the only way I can order food is by scanning a QR code. I scan the QR code and before I even see the menu, they ask for my email address. You know what I did? I gave them the Apple ID dummy email address. Doesn't actually give it to them, but I can get the email to confirm my identity. I'm a person, I'm a real flesh and blood person sitting at the table at a cafe. I have to confirm my email address identity. Like that is just diabolically insane to me, but that's what brands are doing because it's like the best, the, the best practice is to collect as much first party data, collect their email address early. So that's the concern. I think right now we don't, I don't think there's any answers into the right way, but I think yeah. the challenge and the, the caution is there, right? Like we have to be really careful about how we exactly we're asking for data from consumers. 
I, I would argue that they did not have the right value exchange strategy. If they had let you make the order and then at the end say, save 20% on your next time in, give us your email, you're going to act very differently. Like, I, I think that is, it's going to be the crux of successful first party data strategies and unsuccessful ones. I agree. It's what's the value? Uh, well, can, like sharing personal data about myself is something like I shouldn't get paid for, right? Like most people wouldn't say, oh, if I share some info, I should get paid for that. Now, there are some startups that are trying to do that. Like they're trying to pay users for the data they share and and that's sent over to ad tech buffers. So startups, none, nothing's been really successful in that space, I don't think, very much at all. Yeah. But like the val like, okay, the value exchange, I'm sharing information about myself, but you know what? Um, I've been sharing photos and my thoughts and content on social media about myself for free for, for like a decade, right? And most of us have. If you've got an Instagram account, you're sharing photos and personal information about yourself because of it's free, right? They want to connect with others and share information about themselves and, you know, and perhaps build an audience or whatever it is. But what I'm saying is that like, I think the challenge around the value exchange is that first party data is, um, I guess it's not, it's very hard to draw any sort of commercial um, association with it, if that makes sense. You know, like, People give it for free every day, billions of terabytes of data, always shared every single day on the web across all kinds of things. And people are happy to share information. And I don't think that they would necessarily see it as a value exchange from the consumer's mind. I think that there is an opportunity, of course, as you say, like 20% discount, give us your email address. Yeah. But on the other side of it, it's like, yeah, I'll just share my email address. Who cares? Right. Or I've got a burner email address. Who cares? Right. Like it's just yeah. data. Like it's not, it's not like I'm. You know what I mean? Like, you're not asking me to pay anything. So uh, I'm, what, what am I, who cares? You know, so maybe we're ratcheting up this whole value exchange too much where most consumers won't actually care. You know, again, that's the other side of this is like most people won't care about sharing data. I think you're right. I think you're spot on. And, and I think yeah. going to the challenges here too, they're going to share data relative to the relationship. So first party data in most cases is going to be limited. The breadth and depth is going to be limited to the relationship between that consumer and that brand. Like what I'm going to tell, again, a, a hiking food company, I'm like, okay, I'll share with you how frequently I might be out outdoors and whatnot, but am I going to tell you about my kids after school sports? No, like, no, that's not, I'm not comfortable with that. So there's, there's always going to be some sort of kind of line in what is appropriate. And that's where first party data is going to be limited to kind of the scope of the relationship between that brand and that consumer and what is reasonable and relevant to share from a first party data perspective. Yeah. I think that it is, you're right, that there is a framing around relationship and like the different shades of relationship with consumers. Consumers have different relationships with brands and they're all variable as well and at different stages of time and life. So yeah. I, I think it, I think it, what, what we're kind of getting to here is that at the end of the day, you have to think seriously about the consumer experience. So this perhaps a shift of first-party data and ad tech and needing to collect more first-party data will require marketers to think more seriously about their customer experience because all of a sudden they don't just need a consumer to transact, they need a consumer to share certain information along the way. Um, you know, And that will probably be a forcing function to go, hey, if we don't get the customer journey right, don't get the right value exchanges and the right points in time to collect data, then we have a commercial commercial impact to that, not just from purchases or conversions or signups, but also from the type of data we can collect and use to drive advertising effectiveness. So I think that's a, that's a really interesting positive I haven't thought about before, which actually this could have a second order effect of marketers thinking more seriously about the customer experience. But before we wrap up, I do want to just quickly shift into the Panorama ID, because this is one of the areas where I think a lot of May is pretty strong in that you guys are actually doing a lot of interesting work in the Panorama ID, but I wanted to sort of unpack that a little bit with you because it is tied into the spherical platform. Um, how does the Panorama ID work? What's the use cases and I guess what's the value of the Panorama ID in the Lodome ad tech ecosystem? Yeah, so Lodome's uh, Panorama ID is is the result of our Panorama graph. It's our own identity spine that we've built. Um, we have our own probably. Um, our own proprietary graph. We also, we call our graph a graph of graphs. So we do work with graph partners and we do that for a few different reasons. Um, 
one, we want to offer the most scale and the most accuracy across different markets. And as we've learned, there's different uh, graph benefits and challenges in in every market. So uh, we have built a graph that kind of works like a waterfall and it starts with our own proprietary graphs and then it kind of ticks through other graphs to see if it can fill the gap. But it also uses other graphs as a as a honing mechanism to kind of validate. So it's like we're not eating our own dog food. Um, and so the little me panorama graph, it fuels everything. It's it is at the center of spherical. It's at the center of our data partnerships. We bring data in on the graph so that way it translates to the panorama ID. We have integrations with DSPs and SSPs that support Panorama ID. So it really is our method of preserving connectivity in a post third party cookie world. When we went to market with it a few years back, we did start with a probabilistic spine. So we wanted to do that for a few different reasons. One, we wanted to fill the gaps of the unknown. So a lot of the deterministic ID spaces. UID2 and Ramp ID are our market leaders in that space. They're really strong in graphing two different deterministic, you know, a deterministic identifier across two different devices. But as we've spent a lot of time today talking about, that can be very limited scale-wise for both publishers and brands. So we wanted to help with the probabilistic side in offering a lot more scale and connectivity. Um, we've since added a deterministic layer. So I would say the Panorama ID is a hybrid universal ID that can match on both authenticated deterministic events as well as probabilistic. A few other notable things, because we have our data marketplace, the Lodomy Data Exchange, we're one of the few IDs in the space that comes enriched. So if you're a publisher and you adopt the Panorama ID, you benefit from having demand on that ID because brands are going into a DSP. They're saying, I want to target females 35 plus in market to buy an SUV. And so as the publisher, you can now sell that audience programmatically and have demand on that ID. Whereas a lot of these other ID spaces don't come packed with that kind of data marketplace as well. Uh, and I think the last kind of distinguishing point is we're not encrypted and that was to go to market and help support the free and open web instead of charging a fee for that encryption to, to de-encrypt these IDs, which makes it really challenging for some brands and some publishers to adopt that strategy. So it kind of works as connective tissue in the, in the sense that you it's not you're not locked into the a lot of my ecosystem when you use a Panama ID. It's it's very much flexible and you can be utilized across a variety of different ad networks. Is that the sort of sense that it seems like the value proposition is a flexibility and also the scale as you mentioned with probabilistic? Yeah. So we have publishers that are not platform customers that have adopted it and they're benefiting from it. We have brands that are buying against it in DSPs that are benefiting from ability and environments like Safari, you know, third-party cookies are already gone in some browsers. So they're immediately seeing more scale and better performance in these environments that they were challenged with previously. Um, but then for our spherical customers, there's even more benefits to being able to really understand their audiences across different devices and across different time spaces in a way that third-party cookies can kind of do to know, but again, still has some, some pretty significant gaps. Yeah, I, I think that that's really fascinating. I think about it from an ethical perspective, isn't that like these types of ID solutions, like Panorama ID, and there's a variety of others as well, they kind of help keep the internet open and free. <laughs> you know, they play yep. such a huge role in the value proposition for advertisers to spend spend their, their dollars on publishers. And it keeps publishers paid, which means that we can have a wide variety of publications or news publications, um, you know, a, a whole variety of different types of content websites, you know, a whole bunch of different content creators can make a living through um, through this and keeps the internet open and not just centrally controlled to a few different walled gardens. And so I think that is one of the, probably the most fascinating aspects of this and that even though the media denigrates third-party tracking and publishing, like the real problem is not 
I don't think the surveillance aspect, because like a medium size, they make $10 million a year publisher. They ain't got the time or the effort to do rigorous surveillance of their users, right? And they don't have a huge volume of users either, like on their website or what they're running ads against. But it enables them to have a profitable business that they can grow and and and, and allow to have uh, free content, free value to users that use the internet every day. But that's like criticizing that is not the problem. I think the problem is big tech and, and huge platforms that are like black holes sucking in all of the attention, all the ad dollars, everything into a single platform, one single point of failure where we don't have this, like the promise of the web was that it was open and it was distributed. And I think the pan Panorama ID plays a pretty big role in that as well. Um, and so I think that's overlooked. I think often we don't see the the role of these ad tech identifiers as a, a force for good to allow the web to be open, free, and to create viable business models on top of as well. 100%. Yeah. And, and I think the last two years, we've seen a big push from publishers to implement subscription models and really see how far they can push the needle in a paid subscription model in lieu of an advertising model. And it's not wildly successful. There's yeah. some unicorns out there. The New York yeah. Times, great job, New York Times. You did it 100% paid, but those are very few and far between. And so everything you just mentioned is spot on. I think it, it is about preserving the free and open web. It's about helping the medium-sized businesses, not just the the massive ones that are absolutely standing to benefit from all of this new regulation. And it's and it's and I think it's a real shame that we've allowed particularly Google's ad tech monopoly to persist and grow. You know, the DOJ has now got an open investigation and in their lawsuit against Google's ad tech monopoly, which hopefully will release a lot more opportunities for ad tech players like Lotome and others to build companies. Because I think that if we centralize things too much, it's just too much power. It's way too much power. It's way too much influence over how the internet operates. And, you know, I'm I'm a bit more like we need to have more of a decentralized internet. I think the world is better if we have a more decentralized web and more opportunities for people to build businesses on top of. And I think that we're seeing this wave. So perhaps a lot of maze in an interesting spot, even though, you know, we've been riding this wave for 17 years of ad tech and all the ways it's evolved. It definitely feels now like we're moving into this interesting new phase where hopefully we see more creativity, more marketers thinking about the customer experience. And of course, um, more um, utilization of some of the, the customer data to actually do great targeted advertising. But Alex, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a wonderful, fascinating deep dive into Lotome and the new C Spherical CDP. I definitely recommend folks go check it out. Very interesting platform, very interesting stuff that um, Lotome is doing. But before we wrap up, Alex, where can we find you on the internet? Where can we learn more? Yeah, um, personally, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, but it, our website, loadandb.com is going to be a great resource for you guys. Um, and we look forward to, to continuing the conversation with anyone who wants to. Right. Well, thanks for joining. Now we interview people regularly on the Making Sense of MarTech podcast. People like Alex, who are really pushing the boundaries of building new tech and new solutions um, in the marketing tech space. So if you'd like to learn more about us, you can check us out at themartechweekly.com and subscribe. Um, or you can subscribe with your favorite podcatcher. Or if you're very generous, we'd love for you to leave a review on our podcast in a, in a small comment. Um, but that is it for today. Thanks, Alex, for joining us. Thank you so much.